Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The New York Attorney General sues former President Trump and his company. She claims they've engaged in years of financial fraud. New threats from Putin. How President Biden responds in his speech to the UN today and what Biden says about China and Taiwan. A Republican congressman has new evidence. He says it confirms Hunter Biden negotiated with a Chinese company and that President Biden was directly involved. Illegal immigration. Some senators say they want to see if sanctuary regions are causing the influx. And Venezuelans are overtaking two other countries, now the second most stopped nationality at the border. The Federal Reserve hikes the interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point for the third time in a row. They say they're fighting inflation. New York Attorney General Letitia James is suing former President Trump, the Trump Organization, and three of Trump's adult children. This is part of her years-long probe into their business dealings. New York Attorney General Letitia James announced Wednesday that she has filed a lawsuit against former President Trump, the Trump Organization, and its senior executives. She claimed that they are responsible for $250 million worth of financial fraud. The complaint demonstrates that Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system, thereby cheating all of us. He did this with the help of the other defendants, his children, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and Eric Trump, and former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg and Trump Organization controller Jeffrey McConney. James claimed that from 2011 to 2021, Trump and the Trump Organization knowingly and intentionally created more than 200 false and misleading valuations of assets and that they did so to obtain a variety of financial benefits, such as having banks lend money to the Trump Organization on more favorable terms. The Attorney General is asking the court to do the following. We are asking the court to, among other things, permanently bar Mr. Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, Eric Trump, from serving as an officer or director in any corporation or similar, similar entity registered and or licensed in New York. To bar Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization from entering into any New York State commercial real estate acquisition or from applying for loans from any financial institution in New York for five years. Trump reacted to the lawsuit on Truth Social, writing in part, quote, another witch hunt by a racist attorney general. She is a fraud who campaigned on a Get Trump platform. During her campaign for attorney general in 2018, James said, quote, no one is above the law, including this illegitimate president. I look forward to going into the office of attorney general every day, suing him. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Over to Capitol Hill, lawmakers are a step closer to changing rules for certifying presidential elections. The House took a vote this afternoon, and there's some support in the Senate as well. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more. 
With a vote of 229 to 203, House lawmakers on Capitol Hill passed the Presidential Election Reform Act. All Democrats voted yes, with nine Republicans joining them. Preventing radical state legislators from attempting to nullify the election. Congresswoman Liz Cheney wrote the bill alongside her colleague on the January 6th Select Committee, Democrat Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. The goal is to make it harder to overturn a certified presidential election in the future through changing the 1887 Electoral Count Act. Our bill reaffirms what the Constitution and existing law make plain. The vice president has no authority or discretion to reject official state electoral slates. Republican leadership pushed for a no vote, saying it does nothing to strengthen the integrity of our elections. Democrats largely focused on how this bill is meant to prevent a replay of January 6th. And what the select committee has demonstrated, that those seeking to overturn the election were exploiting the vulnerabilities in the law. Republicans pushed back that a bill of such importance should not have been rushed. I'm not calling to question whether this bill is good or whether this bill is bad. What I'm saying is we have not been involved in this process and we're being told to just take the word of someone because they call themselves a conservative commentator. The House took the vote on the 38-page bill less than three days after the final text was released. The midterm elections are just weeks away. And the Democrats are desperately trying to talk about their favorite topic, former President Trump. Now, the Senate has its own version of a bill to make changes to the Electoral Count Act. That version is bipartisan, written by Republican Senator Susan Collins from Maine and Democrat Senator uh, Joe Manchin. Those two senators just announced today that they do have 10 Republican co-sponsors on that Senate version, which means there is enough Republican support in the Senate to make changes to the Electoral Count Act. Now, how quickly Congress can get this bill to the White House largely depends on how fast the House and the Senate can come together and reconcile the differences between the two versions. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Wisecup, NTD News. And in his speech to the U.N. today, President Biden responds to what many see as nuclear threats from Russia. And he again comments on China and Taiwan. NTD's Iris Tao has more on that. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never Fought. Addressing the UN General Assembly on Tuesday, President Biden condemns Russia for invading Ukraine and making new threats to the West. Again, just today, President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. Biden's speech comes hours after Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a rare partial mobilization of citizens to join the fight. Putin also warned that if the West pursues what he calls a nuclear blackmail, we will certainly use all the means at our disposal. Our country also has various means of destruction. But an expert says all of these threats have been hollow. On another front, Biden says this about U.S. and China as tensions escalate. We do not seek conflict. We do not seek a Cold War. And on Taiwan, Biden notes that the U.S. remain committed to our one China policy, which has helped prevent conflict for four decades. And that comes just days after Biden vowed to defend Taiwan militarily against a Chinese invasion. But the White House said there's been no change in policy. 
They don't know what their foreign policy is. Congressman Greg Stubbe, meanwhile, tells NTD that he thinks Biden is trying to buffer back his statements on Taiwan. Yet days ago, his administration is dialing back what he said about Taiwan. And then the next statement he's making is, oh, we don't want any altercation with the Chinese. China is the number one national security threat to the United States. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And over to the Hunter Biden probe. A congressman says there's new evidence that he thinks will lead to an investigation of President Biden. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Wednesday, Representative James Comer, GOP ranking member of the House Oversight Committee, told Fox News' Sean Hannity he has new evidence about Hunter Biden's business dealings. Well, what we have is uh, proof, emails, uh, as well as a whistleblower that confirms the validity of bank transactions that we also have that showed that Hunter Biden, through his company, Hudson West, was negotiating a deal with the Chinese energy company, CEFC, to purchase American natural gas. He claims CEFC's main objective was to get more control over American natural gas prices and says President Biden was involved. We also have confirmation that Hunter Biden uh, told CEFC that his father was going to be a major uh, investor in the company. The president has repeatedly denied having any knowledge of Hunter Biden's business dealings. NTD reached out to the White House for comment on Comer's announcement, but we didn't hear back before broadcast time. Comer's announcement comes one day after the committee voted against a resolution of inquiry he proposed. This resolution of inquiry requires President Biden to hand over documents in his possession that are related to the Biden family's international business schemes and influence peddling. Comer said the documents were necessary to determine if there are any national security threats. It is time for President Biden to answer some questions about his participation in his family's business schemes with some of our most significant adversaries. Tuesday, CNN reported that Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney, a Democrat, said Republicans are just trying to smear Biden and boost Donald Trump by targeting Biden's family members. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And staying on China, the country's unconventional debt practices came under fire yesterday. A top U.S. Treasury advisor said the regime could be trapping other countries in years of lower growth and underinvestment by failing to provide debt relief and in some cases even increasing the value of its loans when they're renegotiated. How and why is this happening? Earlier today, I spoke with Bart Marcois, former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Energy for International Affairs, for his perspective. Bart Marcois, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephanie. It's nice to be back with you. Now, China's been accused of trapping countries in debt and refusing to provide debt relief. Why do you think China is willing to lend money to poor countries when it's a developing country itself? Oh, that's a great question. China isn't a developing country. China is an extremely rich, wealthy country in certain parts of it, but only if you're a Communist Party member or the son or, or grandson or daughter of a Chinese Communist Party member. There are regions of China where the population is intentionally kept below the poverty level, but it is a wealthy, wealthy country. And this is, frankly, an element of uh, of international power. They are exercising power. They are loan sharking 
around the world is what they're doing. So what is the difference here, the key difference between China's lending practices and the West's? Oh, great. Another great question there. China's lending practices are predatory. They're going to places. Uh, the reason I call it loan sharking is they're going to places that can't get a loan by walking into up to the service counter of an international bank and saying, we would like to take out a loan to finance this project or that project. China will go to a country and say, listen, here we can give you $3 billion to build a port and you can pay it off over 40 years at usurious rates, very high interest rates. And if you, for any reason, fail to pay, then we will simply take over ownership of the port and we will end up owning that port in your country. And, and here's the thing. What they're doing would be considered criminal in any city or state in America. Uh, their two main crimes are not just loan sharking, but they're also money laundering because they are giving, they're lending, say, $3 billion to build a port that would cost maybe $750 million. And the other two and a quarter billion goes into the pockets of various Chinese communist officials and their family members and the president or prime minister or, or finance minister in the poor country that makes the deal. And that that minister, that that premier retires after a few years and he still has his billion dollars in Switzerland or the Cayman Islands and the country is left to pay off the loan. But meanwhile, he's laundered that money with Chinese assistance and with the assistance of banks all over the world. And China's loans often prevent the borrower from revealing the terms and conditions of those loans. But the terms can't That's report. correct. Right. And those terms can actually reportedly include the ability to demand immediate repayment, which could potentially be in the form of political cooperation or geopolitical favors. How could that affect yes. countries' relations with the U.S.? Well, let's, let's imagine that China uh, increases its threats to Taiwan, for example. Let's imagine that it actually attacks Taiwan. Any country that assists the United States in assisting Taiwan would then have their loans called due immediately. They would, they would face immediate financial pressure. And with the American um, standing in the capital markets declining as, as Joe Biden spends us, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and most recently uh, Joe Manchin spend us into penury our standing in the international markets is weakening, and China's is strengthening. They hold the cash, they hold the money, and they hold financial power, and they're using this as an instrument of state power. So what can the U.S. do to remedy this situation? Most important thing we can do is start producing energy, our own energy, and making ourselves energy independent and making ourselves more financially independent, more financially secure. We need to stop federal spending and start producing our own energy and cutting the, the federal spending and the federal tax burden, because that's what's driving inflation. And as the value of the dollar sinks, where are people going to go when the dollar's gone? All right, Bart Marcois. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Affairs, thank you so much for your time.
Thank you, Stephania. Turning to immigration. Venezuelans now make up the second largest nationality to cross the U.S. border illegally. And some Republican senators say they want to find out the effect of sanctuary cities. Most illegal border crosses are Mexicans, and after that it's Venezuelans. They surpassed Guatemalans and Hondurans to become the second largest nationality coming into the U.S. Authorities stopped over 25,000 Venezuelans in August. That's four times as high as in August 2021. That comes as Breitbart reports that Venezuela is releasing inmates from its prisons, some of which reportedly are murderers or rapists, who then travel to the U.S. The outlet reports that Border Patrol received instruction to look out for these convicts. Communist Cuban dictator Fidel Castro in the 80s also took similar action by releasing prisoners. NTD can't independently verify if Venezuelan inmates are really being released and heading to America, but Senator Rubio hinted at those reports on Fox News. Is, is there a strategy here? Is Venezuela deliberately, uh, or other countries deliberately sending people here uh, that they believe will cause harm within the United States? Uh, we also don't know the answer to that, but there's some suspicion that that might be the case. 2022 marks the first time that authorities stopped immigrants over two million times in one fiscal year, which starts in October. The number of apprehensions October through August is up almost 40 percent from the same period last year. Some GOP senators say they think sanctuary jurisdictions might play a key factor in the influx. Immigrants have to state an address in the U.S. when they're apprehended by Border Patrol. Republican senators wrote a letter to Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas saying they want to see if most of the addresses provided lie within sanctuary jurisdictions. They write, sanctuary city policies are dangerous and threaten public safety. Sanctuary cities and jurisdictions simply release dangerous criminal aliens. These policies prevent law enforcement officials from cooperating with federal immigration officials and allow dangerous, violent criminal aliens to walk free without fear of deportation. Meanwhile, 78 immigrants that are on the terrorist screening database have been encountered so far this fiscal year. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. The Federal Reserve today hiked the interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point. This is the central bank's latest move against rising inflation. This is the first time that the Fed hiked the interest rates by this much in three consecutive months. The Fed's benchmark short-term rates are now in a range of 3% to 3.25%. This is the highest level since early 2008. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell signaled more large rate cut hikes to come. And also today, the U.S. dollar went up 0.4 percent to the highest it's been since 2002. The jump happened after Russia said it was calling in 3,000 military reserves, escalating the war in Ukraine. When there's extreme political tension between countries, investors tend to trust the U.S. dollar more. And up next, a political argument reportedly ended in the death of a teenager in North Dakota. Reports say he was run over. The driver is released from jail to await trial. And a new study concludes that ivermectin is effective in preventing hospitalizations and death from COVID-19. NTD speaks with a doctor who co-authored the study.
A North Dakota man has reportedly been released from jail after he allegedly ran over a teen, killing him following a political argument. Police records say the driver admitted to consuming alcohol before the incident. The records also state the suspect admitted to hitting the teenager with his car. Fox News reports the 41-year-old man was arrested for driving under the influence on Sunday and released on Tuesday after posting a $50,000 bond. He has been charged with criminal vehicular homicide and leaving the scene of a crash involving death. A breathalyzer test reportedly showed his blood alcohol level was above the legal driving limit. The police report says the suspect told officers the teen was part of a Republican extremist group and that he thought the teen was calling friends to go after him. In the battle against COVID-19, a detailed study shows that ivermectin is highly effective in preventing hospitalizations and death from the disease. One of the doctors who co-authored the study said millions of lives could have been saved if ivermectin hadn't been misrepresented in the media. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. The millions of people who could have been saved, I mean, the trajectory of the pandemic would have been far, far different. Dr. Pierre Corey is the president of Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, or FLCCC. He's also a co-author of a large controlled study of ivermectin that had 113,000 participants. It took place in June 2020 in Brazil in a city called Itajai, where participants took ivermectin for a five-month period, four days per month. Uh, infections were reduced by half. Uh, hospitalizations and mortality about 68 to 70 percent. So there's massive reductions in infections, hospitalizations and death. Now, the latest findings come from the secondary analysis. They were able to use pharmacy data to separate the study participants into groups of those who took ivermectin regularly, those who took it irregularly, missing doses and those who didn't take it at all. And when they did those comparisons, it, it got even stronger, which shows you that, you know, we've known for a long time that there's a dose response. And so there was a 90 percent reduction in mortality and 100 percent reduction in death if you took it regularly and didn't miss any doses. He said the findings are not a surprise to those who study ivermectin, as this study just adds to about 12 other observational and randomized control trials on prevention. You know, to see a, a life-saving drug be maligned and, 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 and getting most of the world to believe that it's not effective, um, it, it's truly a humanitarian tragedy. The FLCCC is holding an educational conference on understanding and treating spike protein-induced diseases in Orlando, Florida from October 14th through the 16th. The FDA does not currently approve ivermectin to prevent or treat COVID-19, but it acknowledges that assessments are ongoing. We reached out to the NIH and the FDA for comment on this latest ivermectin study, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Tennis great Roger Federer will play his final professional match Friday night, a doubles competition at the Labor Cup. The 41-year-old announced his retirement last week after not sufficiently recovering from multiple knee surgeries. The Labor Cup is a Europe versus the world team competition where each player plays a singles and a doubles match Though the rules have been tweaked so that the still recovering Federer can be excused from singles play. Earlier this summer, Federer visited Wimbledon, saying he hoped to play there one more time. 
but his recovery didn't progress as expected. Then I got a scam back, which also wasn't uh, what I wanted to be. And um, at some point you sit down and go, okay, well then, this is, we're at an intersection here uh, at a crossroad and you have to take a turn, you know, which way is it? Federer hopes to team up with longtime rival Rafael Nadal for his final match. In basketball news, Phoenix Suns owner Robert Sarver says he's selling the team. The embattled owner was suspended for a year and fined $10 million by the NBA last week for workplace misconduct following a 10-month-long investigation. Sarver released a statement Wednesday calling the climate that we live in unforgiving and saying, quote, whatever good I have done or could do is outweighed by things I've said in the past. Sarver bought the team in 2004 for $400 million, an NBA record at the time. Forbes magazine estimated the team worth at $1.8 billion earlier this year. And tonight's sports schedule includes 13 baseball games highlighted by a possible Aaron Judge record as the Yankees host the Pirates with Judge now at 60 home runs. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.